0: Amen. That was fantastic. Thank you, Hill Girls. Our God is love. Well, good morning. good morning. Have you been wished a happy Father's Day yet? Well, from one father to another, I wish you a happy Father's Day and may many blessings from our Father who art in heaven uh, follow you this year. Um, we want to honor the Lord by honoring the dads that he's blessed us with this morning. And we'll do that in two ways, just like we do with Mother's Day. I've dedicated a sermon to dads. And then after the sermon, um, to cheer you up and to tie you over until you get home and and enjoy a real robust meal, we have a little special treat for you waiting outside for the dads as you exit the church. Uh, The Roberts family is going to take that project on. And I understand that, that there was a, um, a family in a church that shared a secret family recipe with them for this snack. So I'm anxious to try whatever it may be that awaits us if I can wait that long. It's only proper since it's Father's Day that I read a few dad jokes. Now usually for Mother's Day and Father's Day, I, I like to tell jokes and stories about children because there's always humor to be found. But dads are known for their jokes. They're known for their corny jokes. I'm just going to kind of blow through these. Some of these you might be like, what? And some of them you might take till after the sermon before, them, before they register. So let me, just, let me just go ahead and share some of these things. But dad, dad jokes are classic. So... Uh, I married my wife for her looks, but not the ones she's been giving me lately. I offered my elderly neighbor $20 to take me up on her new stair lift. I think she's going to take me up on it. Uh, Want to hear a joke about construction? I'm still working on it. Why did the police officer arrest the duck? It was selling quack. Did you hear that farmers stopped making round bales of hay? The cows couldn't get a good square meal. My wife told me to stop acting like a flamingo. I manned up and put my foot down. How does a pilot like a sandwich? Plain. Where do you go when you get hurt playing peekaboo? I see you. What does a grape say when it gets stepped on? nothing it just lets out a little wine alright did you know that five out of four people are not good at math that's my favorite what did the baby corn say to the mama corn where's popcorn? Okay, can't be all fun, fun and games, folks. Let's dive into scriptures. But, you know, it's only proper that we honor dads in that way. <clears throat> We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, 1-4, through four, probably one of the most popular texts being preached today for Father's Day. And I had a lot of different ideas and started to go in a lot of different directions, but this is where I landed. But before we, lead, we read those words, just to give some context... Um, because it really all ties together with fatherhood. The Apostle Paul journeyed to the city of Ephesus on his third missionary trip, and he goes into the city, and you know that Ephesus is a city um, of idols. They were known for making idols, and they passionately worshipped these idols. It was a part of their culture, and this brave apostle, this disciple of Christ, who had been changed by the gospel and inspired by God to share the truth, with people, unreached people, he goes into this city at the risk of his own life and he preaches the gospel. He shares the good news of Jesus Christ. And though it is a city steeped in paganism, people come to Christ. And so when the darkness comes, when when the light expels the darkness, uh, when, when grace expels works, and people know and feel the love of God, they change. And so it's within this context of the Christian community there who have been changed by the gospel, he writes this letter. And he starts out with the very first verse in Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, and he addresses them to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So the Father's Day and fatherhood isn't separated from the gospel of Christ. The whole message of Ephesians, in essence... Paul is teaching this Christian community that the gospel of Christ permeates every area of your life. And it permeates every relationship that you have. God comes in and he just filters through us the Spirit of God. He filters through us the things that are harmful to us, that are heinous, that are sinful, so that he can fill us with life that we might flourish. He fills us with the Spirit of God and so this letter is to remind them that the gospel doesn't you don't just worship god in church or just worship god over here the gospel is is transforming of every area of our life and so he writes about salvation he writes about uh, prayer he writes about unity you know we follow life and uh, we follow god and we let christ transform us even in the midst of all of our differences that we might have. He talks about prayer. He talks about spiritual warfare and many, many things. So when the Spirit of God comes into our hearts and we hear the Word of God and the truth, it resonates with us. And when we come to Christ, we begin this unending perpetual dialogue with the Triune God. And so as we as we uh, sit in the presence of God, learn in the presence of God, and read His Word this morning, I pray that the Spirit will touch all of us. So as the Gospel permeates, finally in chapter 5, he gets to speak to the family, and he talks to wives, and he challenges wives to be submissive to their husbands, just as the, the church should submit itself to Christ. And then he challenges husbands to love their wives just as Christ loves the church. And in the final chapter he addresses children, and then he addresses fathers. And of course I'm going to focus in on fathers, but he goes on to address masters and servants. Because the gospel transforms every area of our lives, whether you feel like you're on the top of the world or the bottom of the barrel, the gospel will affect you and change your heart. So when the spirit speaks, I pray that we are listening and as the spirit leads, I pray that we are following. So with that understanding that fatherhood isn't isn't disconnected from our Christianity, it's not disconnected from our worship. It's very much a part of the sanctification and the glories and the goodness of the gospel. Let's read these words. In chapter 6, the first four verses of the book of Ephesians. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. And here we go, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline of an instruction of the Lord. God's word to fathers. In that one sentence, in that one sentence, we, we find a lifetime endeavor of fatherhood. In that one sentence, we find two basic things we find a negative and a positive. It's the word of God telling us, don't do this, and the word of God telling us to do this. This, it's, it's the, the taking off and the putting on concept. And it immediately tells us that there's the potential in every father to do both of these things. So in every father we have this potential, we can be the father that provokes and angers, or we can be the father that brings our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We can put down, we can build up. What role will we fulfill? So let's unpack this. First of all, we'll look at the negative where he says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. What does this mean, and how does this happen? Well, it means, first of all, something that is often overlooked, and that is that children have feelings. It matters, you know, from a father's perspective. If, if we're not to elicit certain feelings and emotions in our children, it's because children have feelings. And we can father them in a way, again, that, that tears them down and belittles them. Or we can f- father children in a way that builds them up. So how they feel and how we interact with them matters. And we take that for granted today. But it's often overlooked that when these words were written in that Greco-Roman culture, fathers had absolutely all authority over every area of their children. This is the culture where dads, if they didn't like a particular infant, would take them to the cliff and throw them over. And so the feelings of their children didn't matter at all, really. Now, a father might care about a child. I'm not saying all dads were ruthless. But what I'm saying is that in this culture... Technically speaking, the feelings of children uh, didn't matter. And whatever dad did, he just did. And it was unchallenged and unquestioned. So for God to hold fathers accountable in this way, actually though we take it for granted, is a new concept. This alone is the gospel transforming a culture a whole people who used to think this way about children. And now God is saying, fathers, I want you to think this way. About children. Be considerate. What are their struggles? And what role are you playing in their lives? It goes well with the gospel teaching of how the strong are to come alongside the weak. The second, how does this happen? How can we provoke? Well, mainly by neglecting the second command of what we should do. What we're supposed to do is bring them up, and I'll speak to you about that, but, but by neglecting this, and this is often done in two ways as well. We can provoke our children by under-disciplining them, and we can provoke our children by over-disciplining them. I didn't get a single amen from the children in this church, probably wise, it's a sign of wisdom from the kids here. So to underdiscipline a child can cause their hearts to feel unloved, unsafe, unsettled, Uh, cause them to search for safety and love somewhere else. They feel like they're left on their own, and they're young, and they're vulnerable, and they're still developing, and they need that special care. They, They need to be instructed, and sometimes that's a discipline of all. Uh, degrees there. It might be a slap on the hand, it might just be a stern word, it might be instruction. When I was a teenager I, I uh, was angry at my parents a lot. I was angry at them a lot because I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And you know friends are important when you're a teenager. And if my buddies happen to all be spending the night over such and such's house, I wanted to be in on that. And yet my parents, you know, they didn't fall for that all the time. And they would ask questions, well, who's going to be there? What's the parental supervision? What exactly will you be doing? And it drove me crazy. And I was mad at them because I didn't get to do things that a lot of my friends were able to do. Their parents weren't as strict, you might say. So I stayed angry a lot. But it wore off very quickly. You know, I didn't stay angry for life. And I look back on it now and I see, actually, had they not cared for me in that way, I would be angry for life. But I was just angry for a short time because they cared for me. But when your parents don't care for you or your dad is not there for you, then you get in this whole thing where you have father issues and you are angry for life. Not feeling loved. You see, when children need to be disciplined and cared for, when they're allowed to just go out and make foolish decisions that are harmful for them, that's not feeling loved, and that's not an act of love. So another form of under disciplining is what we might in our culture call spoiling. Have you ever been called a rotten, spoiled child? Interesting concept. Because what do you do if you leave food out that needs to be refrigerated? It spoils. It's rotten. Now it's, it's not good for anything. And that terminology transferred into the family. And then if you have a child who is spoiled, it means, oh my goodness, they're ruined in some way. They don't listen to anybody. They're not good for anything, so to speak. Now, that's kind of harsh words, but that's where that idea comes from. So we have to keep children in the right spiritual temperature, you might say. The right temperament, the right uh, atmosphere for them to, to do right and to be good. And we spoil them by giving them everything they want instead of giving them the instruction that they need. I've got to slip in two more dad jokes here. Good opportunity. And then we'll move on. My wife asked me, honey, do you think our kids are spoiled? And I said, no, I think kids just always smell like that. What do Germans call spoiled children? Bratwurst. So, needless to say, we do children a great disservice when we under-discipline them. Because it makes life hard for them. And if all they do is get what they want and demand things. Then we do them a disservice because it's going to be hard for them to find friends. Uh, They're going to be the kids that don't get invited to the parties. And these things don't have to be that way. They, They don't have to be that hard for them. If we are willing to do the hard work up front. And discipline them. If you're wondering, how do I know if my child is spoiled? Here's just a few su- uh, suggestions. Uh, when you tell them no and they throw a temper tantrum, no matter where it is, until they get their way, when they're not satisfied with what they have, they always want more. Uh, when they think the world revolves around them, everybody and everything exists to make them happy. Of course, that makes them very demanding and miserable in the end because life doesn't work that way. Uh, spoiled children are often sore losers. They make excuses. They can't be happy and rejoice in other people's victories because they think the world needs to, be, to revolve around them and they should be the only ones that are happy. Uh, sign, another sign might be that you have to bribe your children to get them to do anything. You shouldn't have to give your kids money or toys to get them to brush their teeth. So there's a few signs there of maybe I'm not on the right track. Maybe I need to uh, do a little more instructing there. What are other ways that we can provoke our children to anger? Well, being that absent dad, the dad that has decided, well, you know, I, I, I think I love my wife and my kids, but... It's really just a matter of having more important things to do. Otherwise, I would spend time with them. So an absent father doesn't spend time, doesn't involve himself in his children's lives. Interesting quote by a man who never had children, though he wrote probably one of the best children's book series ever, C.S. Lewis. He had two stepchildren, but he did not have children. He says children are not a distraction from a more important work. They are the most important work. So absent fathers are just, they're, they're unengaged, they're not involved. Maybe uh, they, they ignore you. Maybe they don't provide as well as they should. Maybe they're just lazy and, and think of only themselves. But all of this one way or another can really frustrate a child because... God put us in that place to serve a specific role in that child's life and well-being and upbringing. Fathers have the exact qualities because God designed the family. And so fathers have the exact qualities as do mothers in different areas that our children need to be whole. And another way that I don't think I've ever heard in a sermon before, another way that you can provoke your child to anger, dads, is by disrespecting their mother. If you disrespect their mother, then you will cause them to be very unsettled and potentially very angry because they love their moms and they need your, their moms. And it it messes them all up inside when they know they're supposed to respect and honor mom and dad, but dad isn't honoring the mom of the house. And a lot of young men can be very provoked to anger for that. You've heard many times that we have a whole generation of children that are embittered against their dads for a lot of these reasons. It's a deep frustration that That people are carrying around in their hearts and in their minds. And yet, the the importance of fatherhood can't be underestimated. It's just this, it's so, so important. It's so important in, in not just families and marriages, but society as a whole. Fatherhood is so important that it was designed to affect every area of life, just like the gospel. Like, if we're negligent in our fatherhood, we are literally not just affecting our families, but society deteriorates when we neglect our God-given jobs as fathers. It has far-reaching ramifications. The 40% of kids do not have a dad in their lives, and those are five times more likely to be poor. Ten times more likely to be extremely poor, more likely to drop out of school, use drugs, alcohol, engage in intercourse and contract diseases and get pregnant and commit crimes, suffer from mental illness and commit suicide. I recently read that a lot of children now uh, suffer more mentally than physically. You see, nothing replaces the role of a godly father. Fathers are the, the heads of family. They're, they're, they hold the social fabric there. And they are the social infrastructure, therefore, of whole communities. So what we do and what we practice and what we, we build and promote in the home goes out of the home. And it goes into society. That's what, where our children go. And so the job that we do while we have them in our tutelage determines to some extent how they will interact with society At large. And so our society can't operate it as it should. If our homes don't operate as they should. So it's no wonder scripture comes in. And even in just in this one book. Women are to be held in high esteem. Children are to be considered and held in high esteem. And fathers are to be held in high esteem. I remember a quote from Mark Driscoll I read. That really stuck with me many years ago. And it's just you know he just puts things out there he says i will submit to you that the two greatest problems in our nation is that people don't know their heavenly father and that people don't know their earthly father those are the two big problems there's disconnection from our dad's the one in heaven and the one on earth i agree with that it's just it's a simple truth so when we when we obey the lord and nurture our children, it improves the health of the whole society, the whole nation, and it affects the world. You know, the gospel's goal is to affect the world. And this is one of the ways that it does that by transforming us as dads. So we're sending our children out, hopefully biblically minded and, and godly. Hopefully hopefully we're sending them out to be hard working and to be respectful and to be honorable. To be honest and most importantly to know and to love God because that's what makes the difference. The God, the gospel has to be in it. That's the higher reason. That's the reason above the sun that Solomon can't find in Ecclesiastes. Why should we go to the trouble of fatherhood? Because there's purpose and meaning Why? Because God put it in there, He designed it, and when we do fatherhood rightly, it's a form of worship. And we please Him, and we honor Him, and He blesses us, and it affects our families, and it affects our church community and our societies. It's not loving to under-discipline. Nor is it loving to over-discipline. That's another provocation. Discipline has a purpose. It's not to get our children back for hurting our feelings it's of redeeming value it's all about shepherding a child's heart it's leading them back to god they've gone astray they need to be right with god and so we step in and we play that role and that's the part of instruction and training and discipline to find the best way to guide a child's heart to god shepherding a child's heart it is not one size fits all our children are different. They have different emotions, different feelings. Some, some children, you give them just a stern look and they're in tears. Other children, you can give them several swats and they still have a smile on their face. They're different. And we as dads need to understand our kids. How do they operate? What's it going to take to lead them back from their waywardness? So what are we to do if we're not to provoke them? Second, we bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, The whole uh, terminology of bring them up, it means they're growing, right? They're growing, and we want to help them grow in the right direction. They're growing. You're constantly having to buy them more shoes. Their pants are high waters now. You know they're growing. But we don't want them to just grow. We want them to grow in the right way. We want them to be nurtured and trained, just like you would take a plant or a vine of some sort, and as it grows, you're conforming it to the shape that it can be the most fruitful. The end goal in all of this is that they would be responsible and godly enough to be independent. Uh, to be their own people, to serve God on their own and perhaps start their own families someday. To, we raise them up so eventually they will move out as responsible Christians and Citizens, mature and wise, able to take care of themselves and able to take care of others. There's a temptation, I think, in many uh, homes and parents' hearts, and that is to not train our children to be independent. But we love them so much, we want to keep them around. We don't want to send them out. And so we fight their battles for them. And we kind of train and nurture them to keep coming to us so that when the time comes and they're old enough, they should be out on their own. They still need us, they still depend on us. They've never learned to be personally responsible. That's not bringing them up, their growth is stunted. So we want to train them so that they can make it on their own. And we do that by giving them freedoms. We test the waters. Uh, we give them a little rope. We have to understand that, you know, kids want to grow and they want to take on more responsibilities. And we have to test to see, well, can you handle this freedom if you want it? Can I trust you in this area? Prove yourself to me. And so we give them a little rope. And if they, they fail, we take it back in. If they need a little more training, we give them a little more rope. But all that's within the safety of our own home. Because when they get out in the real world, the ramifications will be worse. It's an act of tremendous love and care. But it also means that we have to let our kids make mistakes. We have to let them fail sometimes. That's a part of life. But again, in the safety under our care, the safety of fatherhood. This is bringing them up, and it's a very, very gradual process. None of this happens overnight, it's day and night that we interact and are involved and we're communicating and we're dialoguing and we're observing and we're watching and we're caring but we don't want to keep them too long we don't want them to move out too soon either a lot of parents are just in a big hurry to get their kids out the door and they're not trained yet they're not ready for, to take on the responsibilities of life and it's a crash and burn if you take the training wheels off too soon there's going to be blood there's going to be scrapes. And we want to try to avoid that as well. So what's the course material of this instruction that we're to offer? Well, it's, it's revelation. It's God's holy scripture. We teach them who God is. We teach them about God. We read God's word. We, we discuss God's word. We train them in God's wisdom. This is divine wisdom. This is wisdom that the world would not have if God did not speak into it. This holy word. And it makes us wise and it makes them wise. And so we learn and we train and we learn and we train. And we share our failures with our kids so they know that we're not hypocrites. That's okay to do that. Uh, Son, I, I messed up. And I need to go back to God. I need to repent in this area. Age appropriately, of course. Our kids need to see how we fail, but also how we get up on our feet. That's the gospel. How has Christ forgiven me? How am I getting over this? How am I I overcoming the battle in my life? It's all that interaction with that coarse material. And it gets us back to Deuteronomy 6-7, where in the Old Testament, God uh, taught fathers, when do you teach your kids God's Word? All the time. When you walk by the way, when you sit, when you stand, when you rest. In other words, when you open your eyes and look out in the world, there are, there are multiple teachable moments to bring in God's truth to the situations that we face every day in life. That's how the, Solomon did it in Proverbs. He says in Proverbs 7, At the window of my house, he's observing, I looked down through the lattice, I saw among the simple, I noticed among them a young man a youth he had no sense he was going down to the street near the corner walking along in the direction of her house at twilight at the day was as the day was fading and night was setting in and in proverbs you have a father who is observing life he's observing people he's observing foolish things and wise things and he's pointing them out not out of arrogance but these are teachable moments Every day there's opportunities that we can take. You drive into the city and you see a homeless man and he's on the corner. He has a sign, uh, we'll work for food. It's a great teachable moment right there. There's a lot behind that statement. What does that mean? What do you think has happened to this person? Should we share our money with them? Is it good Christian stewardship? A great teachable moment. You go to the next corner and you see another sign, I will not work. I just want money for beer another teachable moment should we give this individual money you see so that is what life is filled with and dads we have that responsibility and that great privilege and that opportunity to be looking for these opportunities in life to impart wisdom into our kids it's okay to impart to point out foolishness yeah where did that get you yeah, my friend wanted to do this where did it get him? You see, now they can't go out for a month. Aren't you glad I told you you couldn't do that? It's okay to use these opportunities. And we need lots of uh, role models in society to point to. I think sadly in our culture, a lot of our role models, they're, they're famous just because they're rich or because they're great athletes or because they're popular. And it says nothing about their character but what are they like in real person other than, well, they're popular and everybody loves them because they can do this really well or make money really well. But what about their character? Do we want to point our kids to role models that have that godly character. That's what's eternal. That's what they can chew on and build on. That other stuff is, is, is select. It's not eternal. So the text gives us a balance of what not to do and what to do. Timothy Keller says, Why under-discipline? Because we need our kids' approval. But the Gospel sets us free from that. Why over-discipline? Because we can't bear them to be failures, to be wrong in any way. The Gospel frees us from the need to have our children to be perfect. Now that is a pitfall for many Christian parents. We want our kids to be perfect. How am I going to do that? I don't want them to embarrass me. I want to be known as a good parent. I want to be known to have the secret to success in that idea. And, and the idea is that if I can just come up with the right rules and just really stick with them, then I'll have perfect kids, and everything will turn out OK. And it sounds good, but what it really does is put us all in bondage and put our children in bondage because we're living beings. We have sinful nature. The gospel addresses us as a whole person. Rules, we need more than rules, right? Rules without relationship, Josh McDowell used to say, equals rebellion. I want to read something from John Stone Street along this idea of perfect Parenting and falling into that trap. I've done a lot of speaking in various homeschool groups and state level conventions. And I'm a part of the homeschool community as a dad. And I'll often talk about the realities that I've seen of certain ministries. That really impose the same sort of oppressive vision of humanity. Which is you can have perfect kids if you do the right things. It's oppressive and it's a view that just fundamentally misunderstands the gospel top to bottom. It's just not fair to put that on somebody and it's biblically wrong. There's not a formula to great kids. There's a way of understanding the human condition. There's certainly a need that we have to understand the evil forces that are out there that are vying for our kids' hearts and minds. But the formulaic approach never works. There's not a formula for great kids. And the temptation is, well, if we, just, we, if we come down really hard and we're really strict and you can't do this and you can't do that and no, 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 and you have to dress like this and you can only wear this and you can only say that. Well, if we come around and we put up all these walls, we think we can't go wrong. Those walls are oppressive and they don't work in real life. And they can also provoke our children to anger. It's about shepherding a child's heart. Understanding what does God put in there people are different our children have different gifts and talents and we want to tap in to those. So God tells fathers to raise their children the admonition of the Lord. Now mom and dads are a team but God puts it on dad's shoulder. Puts it on dad's shoulders. It's teamwork for sure. But we are accountable to God for what he speaks into our lives. Women are accountable to God. To what he speaks into their lives. And that means we have to make life decisions. We have to make career decisions. We have to make personal decisions as fathers. That will serve our family the best. The word for father here is pater. It's where we get our word patriarch. Of course it means the head of the family. A matriarch is is male rulership. over The family and a patriarch is male headship. Or over the family. Now it should be no surprise to us. That this idea that is presented in the Bible. That today's culture. Thinks the exact opposite. Like it, it, it's, it gets worse and worse and worse. And now our culture has landed on the exact opposite thinking. As far as the roles that men or fathers. Should play in the family. The home. And in Society. So you read God's word and the exact opposite is what we hear in today's media or even academia. So God says it's for the flourishing of all that that a father's love and discipline is exactly what children need and therefore it's exactly what society needs and all society will flourish under this kind of uh, godly, that's the regulation on it, godly leadership. Because men and, but our society teaches us what? Well, men and fatherhood are toxic. Something's toxic, you have to get it out of the pure material because you're, you're making it toxic and poison. And so masculinity and, and, and headship and rulership and leadership is being termed as toxic to families and relationships and our society today. A few examples from a great article by Nancy Piercy. She quotes some people by uh, TV news anchor um, Cokie Roberts says, conservative Protestant gender ideology can clearly lead to abuse, both physical and emotional. Adventist Today magazine says that it's no secret that abuse is prevalent in conservative churches that embrace headship theory. And then lastly, the Huffington Post, and I could go on and on and on, but I've limited myself, says at its core, complementarian theology is one of inequality and hierarchy and inequality breeds abuse. So that's their Conclusion that what the Bible teaches about headship and fatherhood, and even just masculinity, is destroying our society. And it's hurting everybody and it's leaving a mess. Those are the feelings, but they are not the facts. She goes on to say the trouble with these negative accusations is that they do not take into account the data from social sciences. In recent decades, psychologists and sociologists have been conducting research On Christian couples. So they're out there saying this about Christianity. And the data says this. Surprisingly they found that the evangelical family um, have found that evangelical family men who attend church regularly are the most loving husbands and the most engaged fathers. As fathers, evangelical men are the most likely to express affection and praise to their children. They're the most likely to spend time in activities with them, like playing with them, reading to them, taking them to soccer practice. They also rate highest in practicing discipline, such as supervising, homework, enforcing bedtime, and setting limits on screen time. She goes on to say, and I'm I'm winding down now, similarly, the wives of an evangelical family ranked highest in terms of saying they feel loved and appreciated by their husbands. These couples are less likely to divorce. And they have the lowest rate of domestic violence of any group in the United States. Now you don't hear that in the news today, do you? All you hear is abuse, toxicity. And yet when you actually look at the facts, and these are this isn't, this, isn't, this isn't just Christian material. These are sociologists. And they are looking at people. But when you actually, instead of just uh, setting up a straw man, you study Christian couples, and you study specifically evangelical Christ, Christian couples, they have the lowest rate of domestic violence in the United States. And she goes on to quote a homeboy, Brad Wilcox, ...of the University of Virginia who is renowned for his research on marriage. And he gives a grave warning. So before we get too encouraged, we need to listen to the other side as well. Because there were some other discoveries that were made in this in-depth research. He says researchers went back to the data and divided evangelical men into two groups... Those who attend church regularly versus those who are only nominal Christians. The difference between these groups are stunning. Nominal evangelicals are the least engaged with their children. Their wives report the lowest level of happiness and they are more likely to divorce. And whereas committed church-going couples report the lowest rate of domestic violence of any group, (was 2.8%, nominals report the highest rate of any group, even higher than secular couples. Now what does that mean? How does that happen? A nominal Christian that just kind of comes to church, they consider themselves Christians, but they're not really committed to church. And he Wilcox summarizes, it seems that many nominal men hang around the fringes of the Christian world just enough to hear the language of headship and submission but not enough to learn the biblical meaning of those terms. They cherry-pick verses from the Bible, read them through a grid of male superiority, entitlement, they have absorbed from secular guy code, and then they manipulate Scripture to justify their abusive behavior. In other words, they know just enough of the Bible to be destructive. They're not hanging around long enough to understand what the scripture says. They jump into action. So why is attending church so important? I'll conclude with this. Wilcox says church going, and here's here's what happens. Church going exposes men to messages telling them that the family was created by God. It is not some evolutionary accident. Church tells men that they are accountable before God for how they treat their family. Let's face it, he says, the church is one of the few institutions in the United States where men encounter other men who are interested in talking about fatherhood and marriage and interested also in practicing what they hear preached. You don't often find it at work and you don't find it in the sports stadium and you don't find it in the local tavern, but in the church you will find a message, and an ethos that is family focused and gives men the motivation to attend to their families. And so we have these holy scriptures. And this message in the apostle Paul. Giving men motivation to attend to their families. Giving fathers motivation to do their job. So this, this toxic term that we hear today. Patriarchy. If, if it means uh, that, that it regards women as inferior to men. I'm against it. If it means that. Men get to boss women around. I'm against it. I didn't have that in my house. If it means that men support violence against women, I'm against it. Christianity is against that. Scripture is against it. But if by patriarch we mean we're describing a father who is loving and devoted and committed and provisional and a father who makes sacrifices personal sacrifices so that his wife and children are cared for, and offers that kind of leadership and that kind of headship, then I'm all for it. Because those are the kind of heroes that we need. My father passed away two years ago at 94. When he died, we were trying to collect material for the obituary and different things like that. When someone passes, you get out all the old... Articles and pictures and so forth. And one of the things they found, never knew it. My dad had a write-up in the Baltimore paper as a hero, as a young man, because he saved a lady from a burning building. That's my dad. He was my model. He's the best. So we, we need to see dads. We need to just look at the folly of the world. Scripture tells us to do that. The world does not have the answers. They will lead us astray. It's knowing God rightly and applying the Word of God rightly as a man of God that gives us the best potential to flourish in our lives and to have an impact on society. Let me just close with this. Cultures are important. We're, we, we're born into a culture. We're born, our world has a culture. Nations have a culture. Our state has a culture. Even this little South side Virginia part of our state has its own culture. Christianity has a culture. And New Covenant Fellowship, we have our own culture here. It's inevitable, it's unavoidable. We, we just, based on our decisions, um, values determine beliefs, beliefs influence. Um, our behavior and behavior shapes a culture, And so we have that going on here. We have an opportunity as we avail ourselves to God's word, to create this culture that holds what God holds in high esteem. women, children, fathers, family. We can create that culture. Now, we have a culture of life here. I love the pitter patter of little feet. And I've heard a lot of people say, isn't it great, though it may be a little dangerous, but isn't it great to see the kids running all over the church? I've had a lot of people tell me that. We are single-handedly at New Covenant Fellowship fulfilling the great great, cultural commandment to multiply and fill the world and fill the earth. We should be proud of that. That's a good thing. We have five... I believe it's five women expecting babies. If we include Nisi, it's six. Expecting little babies to be born. It's a culture here. I love it. And we can continue in that biblical mindset of also a culture that that, uh, loves and adores what God does in family. Encouraging one another. Let me leave you with this. If the world's such a mess and if men really do have such an impact on what happens in it. If the absence of fatherhood is causing the many social breakdowns we're suffering, then the social good can be traced back to a dad who was there. You see, if, if you unravel this to get the mess that we have today, then to regain it, you have to trace it back to a dad that was there, to a dad that was committed, to a dad that loved his children, disciplined his children, protected his children, cared for his family, brought them under his wing. And if the long-term success of children is determined by whether or not they were raised in a stable home with married parents, then we want committed moms and dads. So you see, there's always hope. The Bible is filled with hope. Because the devil came to kill, maim, and destroy. And Jesus came to give us life. And life to its fullest. And we just need to understand that as we come here, and hopefully regularly and not nominally, that the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to transform our lives in every role that He has called us to. And that includes the role of fathership, fatherhood in every relationship that we have. So fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of His Word.